morning. So thankful to be back here with you this morning. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to preach the word. I'm excited to finish this passage of scripture out. I think it's been a good one. I think today will not disappoint either, hopefully. Um, It might be, call it blind faith or whatever, but I pretty much go into every Sunday morning assuming that something great is going to happen. And I think for the vast majority of the time, it's not because I believe in myself. It's because I believe in the word of God being preached. And if I preach it faithfully, that it will uh, not return void. So I'm excited to have that opportunity again. I will tell you, like I told you last week, uh, this is the moment I look forward to uh, most in my week. Um, There's nice times where we have a break, where I get a date night or something like that. But I look forward to this time because I expect God to do great things in us. And what we're going to find today is I think that he also specifically and mostly, primarily, does it through us. Will you pray with me before we open this passage today? Father God, you are so good to us, uh, better than we deserve, better than we can ask. Lord, if we could write a plan up for our life, um, we could not write it better. Lord, even with all the trials and tribulations and struggles that we have, Lord, if we wrote those out of our lives, Lord, we would be weak, we would be incompetent, we would be, um, we'd be individuals who had no ability to endure anything. But you have written our life perfectly balanced in a way that helps us grow, in a way that helps us face adversity, in a way that helps us rejoice, uh, have good times and bad. And so we're so thankful for that. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church, these people, these many members of one body. Lord, I'm thankful for all of the people in this room who have taken on a role, who have recognized their role in the church, who have taken on the role and who have succeeded in doing that role increasingly well. I pray that you would continue to bless them. I pray that you would give them the strength, Lord, that comes only from God to continue serving faithfully for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are squandering their gifting. I pray that you would give them an urgency and an energy. You would energize their lives and their minds to not only seek out their gifting, Lord, but when they find it, to nurture it, to fertilize it, to water it, Lord, to prune if necessary, Lord, to grow their gift in order to be a blessing to the kingdom and to glorify your name. Lord, help us as a church to break the statistics of traditional churches. Help us to be a church of collective work, collective communal work, that we may satisfy your commands and honor you and honor your son who died for us. Lord, help us to live in the power of the Spirit of God as we try to work for you. Help us to not work or do things or or enact our spiritual gifts out of compulsion. Help us to not enact them out of um, the feeling of necessity or desperation. But Lord, help us to enact, to use our spiritual gifts out of pure delight in the salvation that saw those gifts come to us. We love you. We praise you. 
We know that you're going to do something great through us when we surrender to you. So we surrender to you today, Lord. We surrender to your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Last week we began this two-part sermon on the end times and the Christian's action in the end times. If you remember when I said the end times began, last week I laid that out for you. The end times began around the life of Jesus, around the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and burial, and resurrection. Since that time, the whole world has been living in the last days. We are in the end times. With that knowledge, Peter is giving Christians the best action to take with the knowledge of the return of Christ being imminent. We must understand that if it was imminent at the time of Christ, then every day that passes, every day that goes by, it becomes ever increasingly closer to the time that Jesus returns. So every day that goes by is the end in times. It's the more end times. So we must respond and react appropriately. In verses 7 through 9, we discuss a strengthened commitment to the Lord. Peter says, with the knowledge that the end of times is at hand, Christians should respond with a sane and sober-minded a sober mind. We should look at the ongoings of the world. We should look at all of the troubles and trials and tribulation around us. And as Christians who belong to Christ and who trust him and have faith in him, we should know that Christ is in control, that he has won, that we are in Christ, therefore we win also. Why do we need a sober mind? Because the way we view the sovereignty and providence of God in the world today controls the way we pray. If we don't view God as all-powerful, if we don't view God as in control of everything, if we don't really see God as having one, then our prayers will be hindered. The power in our work and our actions will be hindered. Peter says, be sane and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. God is one, friends. If we don't have a proper view of God's powers, our, God's power, our prayers become weak and imprecise. We don't know what to pray for because our mind is so worried about the trouble that we can't pray adequately and accurately for the solution. If we understand the magnitude and power and control of our great God who has no beginning and who has no end, who is before all things and is after all things, and that's the God we serve, who in one sacrifice saved all of mankind that he was going to save for, from their sins, when we understand that that's the God that we serve who lives and reigns together today, who has sent us the Spirit of God to not only be able to manage this world, but to be able to thrive in this world. For Paul says we are more than overcomers. When we understand that, when that is a truth and reality in our lives, then our prayers become precise and effective. 
instead of being responsive, instead of being like that mouse that just runs in circles at every foot in that crowd, we are precise. We are not reactionary. We become effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing we discussed was our love for the church. If the end of all things is at hand, how does that affect your love for the church? Jesus said, in the last days, love will grow cold. I am convinced, friends, that the most distinguishing characteristic of believers in these times and going forward, the most distinguishing characteristics of believers from the world will be their sane and sober-minded ideals and worldview and a flaming hot love. First, a love for the church and all things Christ. And then after that is developed a love to bring the lost to faith. Now those can sort of happen simultaneously, but you cannot have one without the other. A love for the church and a love for the things of Christ and a love to bring the gospel to the lost. It is how the world knows that Jesus is from the Father when our love for each other is strong and different. How, do, how does the Bible say we fulfill the, all of the commands of God? All the commands that he has called us to fulfill? Jesus says the law and the prophets are summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I am convinced that every single person can reach a level of relative peace by having those two questions that I've given you before answered. What do I do with God and eternity, and where can I belong? If those two questions are answered, I believe every single human being has the opportunity for relative peace in their life. I know that there are plenty of other factors that prohibit peace, but in general, when people come to faith, they need to know that they are forgiven. They need to know that they can be forgiven by others, and they need to know that they can forgive themselves. And I don't know of a better way to show this by a demonstration of the same redeeming love that we have received. Friends, new Christians and existing Christians need to know that the church is a soft place to land in a hard and cold world. It's a love that challenges, but a love that is steady, is lasting, and is not circumstantial. And we are all tasked with the responsibility of living in this type of love. We are in the last days, the end of times, the end is at hand. How does that affect your commitment to the Lord? How does that affect your love for the church? Today we're going to discuss another level of our love for the church and for the Lord in verses 10 and 11. Would you read those with me? 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, everything, in, order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, we discussed many ways that we demonstrate love in our time last week, and one of those ways is hospitality. Now, while hospitality is such an important aspect of love, it's overlooked in some people's minds, but it's really not overlooked in general in the church. I would say that some form of hospitality is probably the most present gift of local churches. Think about it. What is in the mission statement and the main goal of most of the churches that lie in Church Road? Most of the churches that lie in Goodman Road. It's something to make people feel welcome. I don't know that hospitality is necessarily a problem. We have events. We have food. We do everything we can to make people feel welcome in our churches, in, in our services. In many churches, there is coffee and gift bags and people hand their children off in the nursery and they get them back when they're ready for college. I don't know that hospitality is a problem in the church. Welcoming people is vastly important. It's a characteristic of an elder. It's a qualification of an elder and it's a characteristic of every believer. But Peter says that our love For the church goes even further than that. It goes to using our gifts that we are given to build the church. See, hospitality without a shared gifting is an incomplete representation of what the church should look like. It's an incomplete representation of what a Christian should look like. If all we're doing is welcoming people and then not training them, we are leaving them to the wolves. If all we're doing is feeling welcomed and loved and not using our gifts, we are hurting the local body of Christ and therefore the church in general. One of the sure signs of love for us, from us, is definitely hospitality. People should feel welcomed. Uh, Absolutely. But even more so than that, one of the sure signs of love is how we use our gifting to edify and build up the local body of Christ. So for our third topic, I want to ask you this question. The end of all things is at hand. Will you use your gifts to edify the church? Verse 10 says, as each of you received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter says, each has received, as each has received a gift. The word for gift here comes from the word charisma, which the word charisma, the root word of that is charis, which is grace. The word charisma means Gift of grace. This is an undeserved gift that comes with being a Christian. 
It comes to you at the point of salvation. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual in nature, but it is demonstrated mostly in tangible ways. Pastor John MacArthur says, The gift is motivated by the grace of God, given by the Spirit to every believer, operated by the Holy Spirit, and for the edification of the church. This gift is a graciously, freely given mode of ministry energized by the Holy Spirit of God. The question we must ask ourselves is, with the end of all things at hand, will I use my gifts to edify the church? As we try to answer that question for ourselves, let's look a little bit more closely at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. The first thing, first, uh, the first thing Peter says is, each person has a gift. Each person has a gift. Look at the first part of verse 10. As each has received a gift. Something that must be perfectly clear to you is that each believer, every person that belongs to Christ, has at least one spiritual gift, if not more, maybe even one or several and parts of a lot of others. You all at the point of salvation, were either gifted with one of these spiritual gifts or, and this may not be something you thought of, and I, and I believe it's true, or God redeemed something you were already good at for his glory. So you were either given a spiritual gift, a new gift at salvation, or God redeemed a quality that was already within you, and he is causing you to use it for his glory. Each person has a gift. There is not a believer on earth who belongs to Christ who does not have a spiritual gift. If we read 1 Corinthians 12, 7, uh, or we read 1 Corinthians 12, 7 earlier, Tony did, and it says this in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each person is gifted for the common good. What is the common good? The edification and the building up of the church. Can I encourage you today? I know that at times I've told you you're not special, but I want to encourage you. You are gifted by God. You are gifted by God through the Spirit of God to serve this church, this church as a whole, and the individuals of the church universal. You are gifted by God to serve the local church and the body of Christ outside of this church. The grace of God has been abundantly poured out upon you at salvation. And at salvation, God gifts you with the necessary gifts to walk in sanctification and to uplift and build the church. You must believe that. Because if you don't believe that, you won't pursue gifts. And even though it seems circular... If you are not seeing an area of your gifting, it is because of a couple reasons, but it's because you either don't believe that you have that gift or you have not pursued it. 
and both are signs of spiritual immaturity. I can assure you, friends, we all have spiritual gifts, and we ought to use them. The end of all things is at hand. You have been spiritually gifted by God. What are you going to do to edify the church? Each person has a gift of grace. The second thought under that, each gift is meant for service in the church. Use it to serve one another as good stewards. Look at 1 Peter 4.10. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each gift is meant for the service, for service in the church. Peter says, you have a gift and we are in the last days. You better use it while you can because the church needs it. Church, I want to inform you of something. Finding and using your spiritual gift is not only an option, it is a responsibility. It is your responsibility. We have all become so isolated and we've all become more self-centered. We were headed on that traje trajectory, but the last several years have, has only emphasized that, that it causes us to tend to hoard our gifts, to hoard our ability. We have no shyness about using them for personal financial gain or personal gain of power. But we have generally lost our understanding that the gifts of God are given not just so that we can thrive in the world, not just so we can thrive in commerce, not so we can just thrive in our jobs, but so we can thrive in the church together as we build each other up. Can I tell you something that should humble all of us? Whatever special talents and abilities we have outside of the church and inside of the church should be redeemed, should be reformed, and should be refined to serve the church and not just increase our kingdom. These gifts do not elevate you in the church, if that's what you're looking for, but they actually humble you. The word for serve here doesn't mean king of the church. It doesn't mean serve and build up so that you can be ruler of the church. The word for service here is not the word for hostile takeover, dictatorship. It is the word for serve, uh, server. Like setting the table and putting food down on it. And even lower, some have said it's the word for busboy. As you use your talents and abilities and you are successful at them, the world will elevate you. The world will say you are special. But in Christ, as you use your talents and abilities, in the church, you are humbled. The higher the ability, the lower the esteem. And it's not that people don't respect you or look at you in a positive light. It is that in order for our gifts to work in glorifying God, our attitudes and our minds must decrease to a level of humility. People will love you. People will respect you. Certainly. Certainly. If you come up and preach a good sermon that is based on the word of God and you do that consistently, you do it over many years, you should, exp you should expect respect. 
You should expect love. You should expect commitment to you and the church. That is something you should expect. But that is not a goal you should hope to attain. If I'm doing this right, the more I preach and the more people love it, the more I humble myself and the more I lower myself as opposed to esteeming myself. As Christian gifts get recognized, the more respect and the more esteem they earn, but at the same time, at the same time, somewhere in this paradox, the more they are humbled. He sees his gift as an opportunity to serve and not take over. When his spiritual gifts spill over into his daily life, and they will, he doesn't just see them for personal gain or to take advantage of people. He is a servant. He is a server. He is a busboy. Peter uses another word similar here. He says, you're a server first, and then he says, you're a steward. A steward, excuse me, a steward was someone who was in charge of everything, but he owned nothing. He was not owner of what he, uh, what was under his charge. He paid the bills, he paid the labor, he managed the house, he led, but none of it was his. In the same way, these are gifts of grace. If they were gifts of Bryce, then they would be all about me. But they are gifts of grace and they are all about God. These gifts are only grace gifts if they are done in the power of the Spirit of God and not by your power. They are only grace gifts if they are worked through you by God and not worked through you for your own gain. Peter says, be good stewards. That is, you don't own the gift, but you are responsible for what you do with the gift. Our gift is not about our own ability or strictly for us. We most certainly don't use it to increase our kingdom. Our gift is meant for service in the church for proper stewardship and proper stewardship is the uplifting and the edification of the people of God we are merely stewards and the end of all things is at hand so we ought to be good ones look at C there's another one each gift is unique to that person as good stewards of God's varied grace there is a great diversity in our gifts, and our gifts reveal the multifaceted character of God's grace. And each one of us has a unique amount, and they are varied in different ways. The Bible mentions many gifts, but I'm not sure uh, that the list that even the Bible gives is comprehensive. And what I mean by that, I don't think it's a complete list, and here's what I mean. I think that there are, there's a list of what the Bible gives, and because God's grace is so great, God's grace is so varied, there are a hundred different variations of each spiritual gift that the Bible mentions. Multifaceted, varied gift of grace. 
Because Peter says these gifts are varied, they will show up in various ways in individuals. So you may have the gift of teaching, but you may never preach a sermon. But you may lead Bible studies in small groups or just your family. To God be the glory. You may have the gift of leadership, but you may never lead a church. But quietly walk through life shepherding people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Shepherding them to faith in Christ. There, uh, the local church is a melting pot of gracious gifts of God. This is why if we want to be complete and well-rounded, we should have some minimum requirements for inclusion into the church, but we should not exclude anyone because they are different or a little eccentric. We should not, the church, hear me, the local body should never assume that they would be okay without one individual. Now, now sometimes people leave, right? Sometimes people leave. Sometimes people go, and I don't think we should ever beg anybody back. We should maybe do some investigation, maybe do an autopsy, but we should never beg them back. But the church, you and I, should never assume that we would be okay without somebody in this room or people that are not here leaving us, that we would be okay without that. We would be okay with that. Because God has given each person a variation of these spiritual gifts and they are necessary for the edification of the church. So if a part of the body leaves, we should assume that the church suffers. It should cause the church then, the leaders of the church and the people of the church, to be people of reconciliation, uh, restitution, of, of bringing people in, of, of gathering people in, as opposed to pushing people away. Because each Christian brings a variety of gifts to build, develop, lead, and edify the church, we should see every Christian who is pursuing the Lord in faith and meeting the qualifications for membership or partnership in a local church, we should see every Christian as valuable, irreplaceable. Brings me to my last section. Each gift is either speaking or service. It's either a speaking gift or service gift. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Each gift, while varied from individual to individual, falls in two categories. It is either a speaking gift or a serving gift. And really all gifts involve service in some way. I think it would be helpful to discuss some of these gifts and it may and maybe see if we can identify them in our own lives. Again, the list uh, is uh, larger than this. It's not just this. And uh, I didn't put it in my, I got to look at my phone because I didn't put it in my outline. So I want to tell you, and you can write this down. If you are looking for where the spiritual gifts are, they're in Romans 12. If you want to look where the list of the different spiritual gifts are, and they sort of overlap. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, which we read today, 
Ephesians 4. And those are the main ones, I think. I might have missed one, but like I said, I didn't put it in my outline, and I wanted you to have it, so those were just from my notes for sermon prep. All right, I compiled a list of from the Bible of and and really some descriptions of these from different sources that I that I want you to have uh, or I want you to understand, and I think they're important. So I'm just gonna just go through them. Okay, hopefully this is not boring to you. Hopefully this is helpful. There is prophecy. Prophecy as a spiritual gift. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the word refers to discourse emanating from divine inspiration and declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving or admonishing the wicked or comforting the afflicted or revealing things hidden, especially by foretelling future events. To prophesy is to declare the divine will, to interpret the purposes of God, or to make known in any way the truth of God that is designed to influence people. Prophecy is typically found in preachers and elders and teachers who rightly divide the word of God for the congregation in a way that helps the church glorify God and navigate these last days. Prophecy is absolutely not, it is absolutely not, a new or fresh word. It is not hearing God speak in a way that is foreign or in addition to what the scriptures have already spoken. The test of a false prophet is simply this. If a false prophet is ever wrong, you never listen to them again because a prophet will be right about everything they say or they're not this sort of, especially as it pertains to um, the giving out of sort of future ideas and future thoughts. The reason we don't, the reason we have so many false prophets today, the reason we have so many people spouting out prophecies that never come true is because in biblical times you would have killed them and you wouldn't have heard from them, from them again. And I'm just being honest. And while I'm not promoting killing false prophets, it sure, certainly would help the situation a little bit. A false prophet, if he made one false prophecy, would be killed. Peter in verse 11 gives us boundaries for a prophet. Boundaries for what is prophecy. He said, verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4, he said, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. The word oracles is used in the Old Testament and it's used as a guide for the church in the New Testament. Oracles of God in the Greek is, are these two words, logia theu, literally the words of God. The oracles of God after Jesus and the apostles are the words that God has spoken. So a prophet, when he is prophesying, will specifically speak the Old Testament scriptures and then the divinely inspired and sealed books of the New Testament scriptures. If a person wants to prophesy, he speaks the oracles of God. Logia, logos, word, theu, God. The words that God has spoken. And the only way that we can confirm that 
is not by taking someone's word for it. It's by comparing it to the word that God has given us and said to us, this is my word. This is my breath. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, of a prophet and how he prophesies. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. This is, of, this is to Timothy, but I think Timothy was involved in some prophesying in the manner that I'm describing today. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So prophecy is looking at the world in a sane and sober-minded way and then looking at the scriptures and being able to rightly make connections between the two in a way that helps the church grow and glorify God and have a sane and sober mind as they walk in faith. There is teaching. That is a person's ability to understand and proclaim the scriptures in the original meaning, context, and application for the church. There is serving. Now, this is serving to the church in general and to the kingdom of God in general. These are people who deacon the church, serve the church. Peter has something to say about this in our passage. He, has, he says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Service shows up in many forms, but it doesn't honor God begrudgingly. It doesn't honor God out of obligation, out of half heart, with bitterness, with resentment, or anything of that sort. The ultimate goal of service should be for everyone to serve and to always strive to serve with the strength that only God can supply and not in our own power, skills, and ability. There is encouraging. That is the person who is lifting people up, empathetic, coming alongside. The word, for, the word exhortation means someone who pulls another alongside, encourages another to fight the fight, to finish the race, reminding people of their purpose and their goals. Do you see where you fit in yet? There is giving. This is someone who gives of their material goods and time and energy for the sake of others and for the sake of building up the kingdom. There is leadership. This is a person who steers the ship, who guides and manages the church. A person who leads with grace and compassion and he, as he carries on the mission. There's the gift of mercy. This is someone who is compassionate, sympathetic, someone who looks to lessen the burdens of life on people. I know you can't write all of these down. If there's one you're specifically interested in, or I can uh, mail you this, I can email you or text you this list. There is words of wisdom and words of knowledge, gifts which all Christians should strive to, to possess. There is the gift of faith. 
While all believers should have this to a degree, this is a person whose belief in God and his promises cannot be shaken. This is the stalwart in the church. This is the person that you can't understand with all that they've been through, how they still believe in the same way that they believe in God. Now, every Christian should have a measure of faith, but some people have it in a way that is indescribable to the natural man. There are, and and we're going to get a little... We might have a little contention here from this point forward, but it'll be okay. There are gifts of healing and miraculous powers. Here's where the contention might come in. This might be something you can discuss in MC, and I'll just be there to tell you the truth. I'll just be at every MC to tell you the truth. This should give you something uh, uh, to really think about. But I think that these gifts of healing and miraculous power are gifts that were specifically tied to the apostles and around the time of Jesus. I think these gifts were given for a moment in time and not for all of time. Now, I do believe, hear me, I do believe that God still heals the sick. I do believe that if he wanted to, he could raise, he will and could raise the dead today. I do believe that miraculous things still happen. I've witnessed them. But I don't think that individuals are gifted with these gifts anymore. I think that this was a gift that was given as a means of jump-starting the ministry of Jesus Christ. As a means of giving legitimacy to the claims of Jesus that he is from God. A means of giving legitimacy to the disciples. It's okay if you disagree. I don't know that you're wrong. There is a gift of of discerning the spirits. These are people who can tell a lie. They can tell a true teacher from a false teacher. They protect the church from wolves in sheep's clothing. There is the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. Now, so I don't get stones thrown at me. I'm just going to read this. Gotquestions.org, which is a very reliable site for answering basic biblical questions. Gotquestions.org defines tongues in this way. It is the gift. The gift of tongues is one of the temporary signs given to the early church to enable the gospel to be preached throughout the world to all nations and in all known languages. It involved the divine ability to speak in languages previously unknown to the speaker. The gift authenticated the message of the gospel and those who preached it as coming from God. The phrase diversity of tongues in the KJV or different kinds of tongues in NIV effectively eliminates the idea of a personal prayer language as a spiritual gift. The interpreter would be the person who could understand the literal language without having prior learning or knowledge of that language. Now this is the one I'm least sure about. Uh, I can say this for certain. If someone tells you that you must speak in tongues in order to receive this extra gift of the Spirit of God, they are wrong. Every gift that you have Everything you need to walk in faith is given to you at the moment of salvation. 
If someone says that you don't have the full experience of the Spirit of God until you speak in tongues, they're wrong. I don't know for sure if that gotquestions.org definition is exactly right. But I do know that that what I just said is true. Speaking in tongues has been prioritized in many Pentecostal and many other churches like that. Where it is, if it is still a gift that is given to individuals and not something that was a manifestation of the time of Jesus and the apostles. If it is, it is still the least of the gifts. Because it is most It is the most likely gift to not edify the church because so much is involved in making it possible to edify the church. So it's the least of the gifts. The value of the gifts are not found in their rarity, but in their ability to lift the church up. We're going to... We're going to be a little late today because I have to finish. I'm sorry. Hope you didn't have many plans. I, I spent years. Now, this is anecdotal in a sense. This is my experience. It doesn't prove anything. Just letting you know. I spent years praying that God would make me crazy, that people would would believe me as crazy if it meant that I would speak in tongues if I was missing out on something to honor God and glorify him. I prayed for years for that. I prayed that God would turn this, this Baptist raised boy full Pentecostal if it meant that I was missing a portion of God that I didn't have. And do you know what I found? It wasn't tongues. But it was peace. It was peace that what I could get from God, he would give me. And again, that's my experience. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't prove or disprove anything, but it is something to consider. I would say to you that if you don't have a gift and that you want it, nothing is present of that gift, you should assume that God's not going to give it to you and accept the ones he's given to you. Like our verse in 1 Corinthians 12, our verses in 1 Corinthians 12, if God made you an ear and you want to be a nose, that's a problem with you and not with God. And the church needs ears and noses and fingers and all of those other things. The church needs lesser parts and the church needs greater parts. And all of us should be going on a trajectory of building up the church while a trajectory of humility, meeting each other at humility. We should all be meeting each other at building up the church and meeting each other at humility. No matter what position we hold, no matter what gift we have. feel like this is going to be anticlimactic, but there is one more that I wanted to mention, the gift of helps. This is closely related with mercy and is someone who assists the church in service in all needs, usually those that are behind the scene. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but just one of those, uh, one of the more <coughs> prominent spiritual gifts. Each one of us possess 
possesses one of these gifts. And within these gifts are, gifts are countless variations of the ways they appear within the church. You don't need a survey or a test to tell you what your spiritual gift is. Here's the most simple way to find what your spiritual gift is. And this is important. And we're not even close to being done, so suck it up. What are you good at? What are you good at? What are you good at doing? See, God saved us before the foundation of the world. Is it he created us in Christ to be good workmen before we were even saved? Isn't it dumb to believe that God wouldn't be developing in us, pre-developing in us spiritual gifts so that when the Spirit of God takes over, he takes over those gifts and abilities in us too? And that's what I believe he does. I believe that God wants primarily, probably primarily, not to give you something new, but to use something that was broken for his glory. God wants to use what you have. He wants to redeem it and reform it and make it more profitable for the church. What are you good at already? What are you already doing? Maybe inside the church, maybe outside the church. What are you already doing that you like doing? You know what? Doing things for God doesn't always have to stink. It doesn't always have to be an inconvenience. It is at times. It is a burden at times, but as we grow in Christ, we know that his commands and his uh, the, the, his teachings are ever less burdensome. But it doesn't always have to be a burden. It can be something you like. What do you like doing? Maybe there's a spiritual gift in there. Is there a strong desire that you have for one of these things that we have lift, we've listed? One of these gifts that we've listed. Take these desires, plant them, fertilize them, water them. And if they grow, then there's a spiritual gift. If they don't, move on. Move on. I mean, I don't give up too easily, but move on. Some people need to know when to cut bait and run. Some people are too resilient. <laughs> Be resilient. Fight for things. Search. Face adversity, but sometimes it's a door closing in your face. Just remember that. Most often the spiritual gift that you have is the one or the, the thing that you're already doing. And you need to accept that. You need to nurture that. Let God grow it and use it. And if none of that works, ask other people what their opinion is of your spiritual gifting. Don't expect them to answer right away. Give them a second. Give them some grace to answer that question. Because I know, without a doubt, someone's going to ask me after, after I've said this. Ask people what their opinion is of your spiritual gifting. I want to I conclude with this. And it's another point, but I promise it's not a full point. It's just a conclusion. The end of all things is at hand. Will you use your gifts to glorify God. Peter says at the end, he gives this doxology, which some people have said that it's like the end of, it should be the end of 1 Peter. The doxology have happened multiple times in the New Testament. 
uh, just in case you hear this, it's the only reason I'm saying it. Doxologies have happened multiple times in the New Testament um, in, before the passage is over. It doesn't mean the passage is over. It just means that Peter's probably overwhelmed with all the goodness that he's been writing and reading. Uh, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One commentator said that the cross of Jesus was not a prominent symbol in the church until around 400 A.D. It isn't that the cross wasn't important, but the fascination with Jesus was not about forgiveness of sins, but the fascination with Jesus was about a transformed life. Everything about the early church was about a transformed life. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus proved that God was powerful and over the world. The transformation of an individual proved that God was powerful and working in them. So for an individual, a more important understanding of the power of God is what he is doing in our lives to make us more like him. So Peter finishes with this doxology. He says, in order that, Peter is saying, be sane and sober-minded, be strong and powerful in your prayers, love that brings people in and serve in a way that proves that, that love and it builds up the church. He says, in order that, do all of those things in order that God through Christ Jesus may be glorified. To him and him alone belong all glory and power. The greatest demonstration of the glory of God in the church is Christians who are changed by that power and then use that power to affect change in others. Friends, the end of all things is at hand. Are you going to use your talents and abilities to glorify God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God? Or are you wasting your time and energy on what essentially turns into nothing? On the list of all that we do in a day, on the list of all we do in a week, in a month, in a year, how full is the list of how you build and edify the church compared to how you build and edify your own kingdom? If the end of all things is at hand, and it is, the church needs all hands on deck. We need each other more and more every day. I challenge you, friends, to find the gift that God has given you if you already haven't. Don't waste your talent and use those gifts to edify and build up the church to glorify the Lord. Pray with me. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for today. We pray that you would just bless our service, bless our time, bless our ability to see your glory and the edification of the church. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.